Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, hello, Miss Pierce. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing much better. Much better today. (laughs) You were pretty wimpy yesterday. Yeah, yesterday wasn't a good day and Monday was even worse. But but today, you know, I've eaten a couple things and I'm still drinking my Gatorade and I had strength today and I actually went for a walk. I mean, it was great. It's a great day. Yeah, and tax time is over, so you (laughs) you can breathe again. Wow. Yes, yes. Um, it's it's gotten much better in the last day as well. So, I guess so. Trying to get a bunch of CRNAs through tax time cannot be a fun endeavor. <laughs> well, you know, the government keeps pushing that window closer and closer because they give people more time to get their stuff, but then you've got the same amount of time to get the returns done. So literally, by the time people get their information to April, well, on the 18th this year, but it's usually almost mid-March before you get people's information. So you literally have about a 30-day time period to get everybody's stuff done in 30 days. I mean, it's it's the most crazy, obscene thing I've ever run into in my life, but... uh, well, anyway, you know, we Pierce files an extension every year, so we're not. Hey, I will tell you out there, peeps, there's nothing wrong with filing an extension. Um, I used to have a really good buddy um, who's been an accountant for years and years, and he always used to tell me this years ago. He said, you know what? He said, the IRS is kind of like the, the bear standing in the stream, you know, when the salmon are swimming upstream. Right. So as he swipes at the salmon, you know, and eventually he gets one or two and he eats them and then the bear goes on. Mm-hmm. So he said that was his analogy to file an extension. You know, if the IRS gets full on what they're looking for, then you kind of keep swimming up the thing. So, hey, you know, I like that. I, Nothing wrong well, with filing an extension. Well, it's a good thing because he does it every year. 
Well, you know what, Sharon, I am looking forward to our show today. Um, in light of what's going on in the world, um, I think this is very timely, and I think it's uh, it's going to be something that our listeners are definitely going to want to hear about. I absolutely agree. So why don't you introduce our guest for us today? Well, our guest kind of needs no introduction because everyone knows Yana from New York. Uh, most especially my son, because my son fell in love with Yana how many years ago? <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's got pictures of himself with Yana for several years uh, going back. And he talks about her all the time. And then out comes his phone <laughs> to no show way. the pictures of him and Yana together. But Yana actually was born in the Ukraine. Uh, we don't want to steal any of her thunder, but, uh, you know, she's got an important story to tell. And given, just like you said, what's going on over there can give us some inside perspective and how she's used her background in the nurse anesthesia profession. And, um, advocacy, etc. So Yana, why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional background and then yep. how, how you came from Ukraine to the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. Um, so my story as a CRNA began 13 years ago. I've been almost 13 years now. Um, I've been living in the United States for about 20 going on on 26 years now. I arrived uh, very much remember the day because uh, I think every immigrant remembers the day if they were, you know, young enough to remember when they arrived, right? It was May 3rd of uh, 1997. How do you remember that, Yana? Because you were only, mm -hmm. what, one or two at the time, right? I mean... <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I was just that, that little. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was a great compliment, Jeremy. I, I love that. Uh, it's all that oxygen that we inhale, you know, at work. So, um, yeah, uh, it was a great day. It was a great day. It was uh, landing at JFK, uh, not seeing my parents for about seven years now at the time. Straight from, you know, the the airline was was departing Moscow to, to JFK, arriving at 4 p.m. I even remember the time, and I remember exactly what we did that night, and I remember exactly where we went and my first taste of Chinese food and uh, in the Chinese restaurant and, and hugging my parents after not being able to see them for so long. Uh, but my, uh, my story story begins in um, beautiful Lviv, Lviv, Ukraine, uh, western part of Ukraine, where uh, it's somewhat calm right now at the moment, although they did, um, they did, uh, did something there a few days ago. Um, it's more like uh, the architecturally, it's very similar to Prague. So if mm. you've been to Prague, it's very similar. Mm -hmm. to yeah. Gorgeous city has a very rich history dating to 10th, 11th century. I mean, we, we're talking about, you know, Europe's history is so old. So my parents were very young. My mom was, was 18 years old when she had me. They met in, um, at the university there and, uh, and they had me and then uh, my dad was assigned because if back in Soviet Union times, you were out of universities, you were assigned to, uh, to places to go um, and serve your first job. Hmm. So he was assigned in this little town in the very central Ukraine called Cherkasy. 
And Cherkasy is situated, it's a very old uh, region of Ukraine, um, known for its production of, of uh, produce, and it's very rich land. So a lot of um, produce and, you know, and um, meats are coming from that part of, of Ukraine. So he was assigned there, and my parents moved there when I was two years old with me. And we lived there up until I was 13, 13 years old, yeah. Um, that part of Ukraine uh, is also known for uh, Cossacks, you know, the Cossack culture, you know, old, very old uh, history part of part of Ukrainian culture is com- comes from that area. So it's very, you know, different from the Western and uh, it's more central. So I grew up there up until the time of um, when Soviet Union um, fell apart. That was in October of 1991. I actually, for as young as I was, I do remember that day as well, very well. It was very similar to, I guess, emotionally what's going on right now um, because of the uncertainty in people's um, perception of it, the uncertainty of what was going to happen with the country um, as a whole, and not to mention the country as, as Ukraine, you know, 50 million people or so, as of recent statistics, 48 million right now. So I um, had a very happy family, very happy upbringing for, you know, Soviet Union times. We've had quite a bit. We had a nice little car and, and a little apartment. And I was a very happy girl. I also always saw my, my parents dancing around. And my dad was an artist behind me. Those are the paintings um, that I always give interviews um, right in front of them. And they kind of supporting me in my mission um, in my advocacy mission and my passion for what I do. And I loved my dad very much so. And um, he was, he truly had a vision always, always very different, very interesting uh, vision of what he was doing and passion for what, what he was uh, creating as an artist. And my mom owned an international bookstore um, and um, traveled a little bit to Germany to, to sell books and, and exchange books at the time, what was allowed by the KJB. So when everything kind of fell apart, 91, um, we had an opportunity. My mom had an opportunity to come to New York with her friends to help her friend to open a Russian book business here in New York. And uh, she took that opportunity. It's a very long um, friendship, longstanding friendship uh, between them two. She's a godmother, actually, to one of my children, one of my boys. And my mom took off and uh, she had uh, an idea of coming to United States just to you know, just to kind of make a few bucks and, you know, make some money and come back three months length. So, but deep inside, you know, 11, 12 year old girl that I was at the time, I kind of knew that I probably not going to see my mom for a while. So it was, it was very hard goodbye. I also remember that very well. So those, you know, where I'm going with this, I guess, is those little moments in your life that, that you experience, whatever they are, really, really great, or they're very, very tragic to you as a, as a human, as a person, as an individual, is what ultimately will define you in the way, I strongly believe that, in the way you perceive life, in the way you um, fight for life and fight for what you believe in. So yeah, so she left. I was left with my dad. Um, fast forward, decision was quickly made that this was an opportunity of the lifetime because the last immigration wave was hitting you know, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, Jewish immigration wave was hitting at the time and everybody was leaving. 
So much like so right, right now, and I'm not only speaking for Ukrainian uh, people, I'm always speaking, also speaking for Russian people, for those that do not want this war, that choose to leave now, because we also need to remember that there are millions of those um, Russians are currently escaping their own country because they disagree with this. So, you know, history repeats itself, right? So now we're experiencing similar situations, and now I'm kind of seeing these waves of immigration. Um, and I always laugh at this part because, you know, I had relatives, obviously a lot of relatives in Ukraine who were not really as involved in my upbringing as my, uh, my, mom, my mom's uh, mother was, my grandmother, um, who was very, very uh, uh, physician to the highest level in this big institution in the only hospital and the healthcare system in the Arctic circle, right above the Arctic in Siberia. Mm. Um, so I always laugh about this part of my story because I was sent to Siberia and not only I was just sent to Siberia, I was sent to the part where, uh, as you probably both know, uh, Gulag was. Gulag is a, is a very famous, um, part of the Russian history, part of the world's history where Stalin used to send his political prisoners after the war. So it is rather very small um, new city that was built at the time in 1950s and a uh, pretty young city and very well known to the rest of the world and much oligarchs money that is kept there right now is uh, city of Narisk. Narisk is, is a new city that's built by the prisoners of Gulag. So it's all connected. There's an old, old city that is, that is currently a historical site where the prison was. And then there is a new city that's built architecturally very much so like uh, Leningrad is also known as St. Petersburg. So very beautiful city in the middle of tundra, middle of nowhere. It is minus 60 degrees Celsius. Wow. Winters last anything from August to end of April. Uh, and there is at least four months, solid four months of solid darkness where the the sun comes up just a bit above the horizon and it sets immediately within an hour or less. Uh, summers last, we always joke, there's a local joke that goes there. Uh, when you go to work in the summertime, the leaves will pop up and then when you, by the time you're ready to come back, they will already turn yellow. That's how quick the summer is. The wow. summers are last all of about four weeks and it's like 60, 70 degrees um, uh, outside, and it's not too warm. Um, the, the city is built on stilts because it is built on solid ice, and it's um, elevated. So all the buildings, there's no first floor. So a little girl arriving, 12, 13 years old, arriving to, to this, getting off the airplane, and there were no, you know, like we have the um the bridges here right that connects to the plane and you get off and it's all warm there there's just the stairs into the wild into the wind blowing at 60 to 80 miles an hour um and i come in and like a little fur thing but it's not natural fur it's not real fur so obviously i'm frozen to death at this point march it's still minus 30 minus 40 celsius outside it's still blowing snow and uh i was just so that was Another little part of my life that kind of had to, and I very much remember that day was in March um, when I arrived and I just thought to myself, I was devastated because I was now in the middle of, um, in the middle of Siberia, like there is no getting out of there, you know, this is it. So coming from a very artistic family, I naturally being raised by my grandmother, I end up in healthcare 
And um, the choices were very limited to me as far as what I'm going to do with my life. So when I turned about 14, 15 years old, that's how, you know, Russian, Ukrainian girls, um, uh, girls of Slavic culture, we are taught to grow up very quickly based on the experience that we're given. We're kind of throwing into making decisions early on, uh, fending for ourselves early on, my grandmother being an iron lady with an iron fist, so much so that she um, said, you're going to become a physician. That's what you're going to do. If you're going to live in my house, um, if you're going to be under this roof, that's what you're going to do. Uh, you most likely will marry another physician. And these conversations are happening at 15, 16 years old. So now I was forced to complete the 10th and the 11th grade rather quickly in one year. So I spent my first two years in Siberia just studying, not really doing nothing else, but just solely study day and night. In the morning, I was going to the 10th grade and at night I would go to the 11th grade. Um, and it was, that's just what, that was, those were the rules. There was nothing else. I got into the nursing school because in uh, back in those days, um, actually probably till still till this day, uh, it is honorable to get accepted to medical school if you were, if you're already a nurse. So it is quite a bit different from the way it's seen here. Nursing background and nursing degree is very much welcomed by um, medical uh, society over there and, and physician society because you already have that base, especially if you have experience in the ICU already. And because for the first two to three years, you support yourself as a medical student by working in the ICU. So a lot of ICU nurses are already actually either entering medical school or going that route. So I was in the ICU uh, naturally kind of getting myself ready to go to medical school admissions and all that. And, um, once I graduated nursing school and that's when my dad, uh, won, uh, the green card, the green card was, um, um, you know, that lottery system that we, we had at the time in, in, in the United States still have. So he got the, um, the green card for the entire family. And I was giving a choice. My relationship with my grandmother was not the greatest. It was very tough to grow up in that kind of environment of a really strong woman kind of dictatorship type of situation. I was sent, you know, to live with her and she dictated the rules and she gave me the, the background that I, that I, I'm very grateful for today. But as my mom recently pointed out to me who absolutely love and adore, and we just the best as a friends right now. And I'm so grateful for the relationship that we had friendship that we had grown to have because it was not easy. Uh, she pointed out that, you know, she said to me, you know, as much as you don't want to hear it, you're much like her. Mm. And I think, oh. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> I know, right? When you open your mouth, your grandmother comes out. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I see what she means by that now. If she would have said that to me about 20 years ago, when <laughs> I just arrived, I don't think that would have been good. But she said that to me and, and, and you know, being an adult, um, being a woman that looks for for advice and for opinion to grow, um, I understand that now. Because I think without that upbringing, I wouldn't have that determination, that assertiveness, and that that drive to do something great, you know, to be part of something bigger. Um, I think it helped me to find my vision that I did not have before. You know, that's, if you do, if you listen, any, any 
talks on, on advocacy, there are many. You don't necessarily, as Simon Sinek says, actually, you don't necessarily have to have a vision. You just have to find it. You just have to find your own vision. And, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that's part of advocacy. And I think, and, and that is based on not only the history that you have, but also on the mentors that you have in your life. And those can be good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. Because everybody's a teacher that comes to our life. So yeah, I took the opportunity and I scared. So you took <laughs> off. So now your mother, <laughs> this was your mother's mother. So your mother was raised by, by this woman too. It, no, my mother actually was raised by her grandmother. Oh, wow. Well. Okay. Yep. And it, she was raised in, because my whole mother's side of line goes all the way back to uh, um, the part of the world that's known as Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan is one of the countries that is separated, just like Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, right. Azerbaijan, you know, Georgia, all those countries, Ukraine, all separated, right? So they come from a from very south, very southern culture. It's Asian. It's Muslim. So um, them not being uh, Muslim, they just by through generations. That's how they end up in that part of the world. Actually, all the way from China. But that's whole another story. <laughs> it's 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 a very interesting family background. Yeah. So my mother was raised by her grandmother, and an interesting fact that they had an incredibly close relationship. It was a complete opposite of what I had, unfortunately, experienced. And fortunately and unfortunately, I cannot see now, I can't even think that it was unfortunate. I can't say that because now I think differently. Now I'm grateful for it. Mm -hmm. It made you tough. Yeah. In the toughness that she instilled in me, right? And also the conditions that I grew up in. I mean, who the hell could think of, you know, growing up in, in that part of Siberia. It's a closed city. You can't even go there because it's it's a nickel titanium closed Putin's little jar that he does not keep open to anybody. Wow. So unless you invite it there, unless you work there, unless you have family there, you can go visit. Otherwise you cannot just get up and go. So when I was when I arrived, I was already had that, you know, that foundation, that foundation of of toughness. I mean, I had no other uh, choice but survive. No English, 18 years old, um, haven't seen my parents in seven years nearly. Mom and dad divorced, unfortunately, at the time already. Uh, No money. I was living, chose to live with my dad because I I was daddy's girl always. And um, was pretty much giving this, this playground was in front of me. You know, Times Square, like I said, the first night we ate Chinese and my dad took me, my daddy took me to Times Square, at which point I had a panic attack because I've never seen so many people in my life, you know, (laughs) and not only just people, so many diverse people in my life. It was just all I've seen is snow all my, for the past seven years, you know, and I was going to say from Siberia to New York City, I just can't even imagine the overload there. Contrast, you, you just... It's 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 shocking. It's just shocking to the core. It shakes you. But at the same time, you know that you know that song by uh, Alicia Keys when she wrote that song. I literally I cried because I could relate to that song so much. Because the concrete jungle that you see, the dreams that come true, all of that is really true. If you yeah. if you're willing to make it that way for yourself, right? So I think that that's what I chose um, to do. 
language was not uh, was uh, was tough. It was tough first two years. I think immigration, you know, immigration does something to you. Uh, very quickly, you realize um, that you are here, but especially when you choose not to live among your your people, right? Your culture. You know, I, I you know, my Russian-speaking population here in New York is all in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I chose to stay in Manhattan. So when I and among Americans, 81st and between Amsterdam and Columbus does not does not you know come close as american as that is that's very new york that's near museum of natural history it's right there smack in the middle of everything yeah so english was priority obviously and and uh and i was afraid to leave the apartment for the first two weeks because all i knew was how do you do and juice i don't know why i remember my first day my first word in english was juice juice <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of children's first word in English, too. So, I mean, as far as the language was concerned, you were a child. Yeah. yeah. That kind of makes sense to me. All right. So, so Yana, you're 18 years old. You're here. You can't speak English. What happens next? I mean, I want to paint this picture. I want to get back to Ukraine in just a minute. But I'm like right now thinking, I remember me at 18 years old. and, And I remember my thought patterns. Um, oh God! And I remember. Well, not all of them, Sharon. Don't <laughs> go down that road. I mean, you know. Oh God! Anyway, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, here you are. You're in in this crazy New York City, completely uh-huh. different from anything you've ever experienced. You can't speak the language. You're shell shocked a little bit. I mean, how do you transition that? And what happens next? I mean, nursing school, anesthesia school. I mean, how does all this unfold to get you to where? Um, I uh, thank you, um, thank you, Jeremy. That unfolded rather quickly because in, in only what over a little bit over twenty years flew by. Nursing, I kind of, I kind of, you know, I even stopped thinking about it at the time because I was just trying to survive. So I, my mom got me a job at at uh, Cornell University, the medical school library, where she at the time worked. So she got me, they shoved me in the back. So I don't speak to anybody. They shoved me in the back near the copy machine. Remember the, the residents used to go to the library to print, to copy everything out of the articles. And, mm. and um, there I was left, thank God, with all these medical books in the back making photocopies. You know, I would get my little order and I would go back there every morning with my little yogurt and I would, and I would just stay there and I would read what try to read what was what was i was photocopying you know and i would try to you know take a fo- extra photocopy or like highlight to translate something because it was medical so i figured maybe something similar and then i think what saved me is, is is the fact that i never i never threw myself among my own culture so i forced myself to learn and and let me tell you something when you're hungry and you really want to change your life when you really want to make some sort of a change for yourself, for the quality of life that you have. I've, you realize very quickly how many languages you can learn. Everybody's saying Rosetta Stone and this and that. All of that is, I tell you, all that is BS. Uh, you got you to gotta submerge yourself into the culture, into the, into the language. Um, I strongly believe that you have to try. I've watched a lot of TV. I love Lucy. That's how I learned. I love Lucy and Friends was my, my biggest uh, TV shows. You gotta watch. You watch. You watch something without, you know, without uh, um, translation to it. So my biggest excitement was when I start understanding and realizing that I understand the song that I always knew from the childhood that my parents loved by Eagles, Hotel California, 
And I always thought it was a song about love. And then I realized, oh, my God, it's a song about death. <laughs> and my parents were crying to it. They grew up with it. And they, I'm like, oh, my God, Mom, that's not love song. <laughs> it's far from it. <laughs> you know, so when you start realizing you understanding words to the song, that's when you get excited because you just something that you recognize that you know. And then so my first degree just to learn English was very simple. I went to a Catholic college. Mullet College in Rockville Center. Um, shout out to them. <laughs> I went for respiratory therapy degree. And that's the only thing that kind of my mom threw me there because she said, I heard about this, this, this degree that you can get. It's very quick and you can just, just, just get some degree so you can just get some work. And I was like, all right. So nursing kind of already, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure what I'm going to do with that, how to go about it. I didn't know about CGFNS and all the transitioning and all the stuff that you have to do, submit all the so I um, went to college there and I, I did not very good in my, in my coursework, I have to tell you, because I, I simply did not speak English very well yet. But I somehow got into the program, went through the program, passed my boards. And then um, the first realization and, and, and knowledge of the fact that I can do nursing without actually doing it all over again came from uh, my Russian colleagues. Um, in, in the ICU that I was covering as a respiratory therapist. And they told me, what are you doing? You know, you have a degree, you got to get it transferred. We need nurses. And I submitted all my paperwork um, as a respiratory therapist. <laughs> my husband will tell you this because he still remembers those days. He met me when I was still a respiratory therapist. So uh, he still till this day tells me, I miss the days when you still had a little bit more accent and, and <laughs> were just a respiratory therapist <laughs> without all this ambition that you have now. So I um I got I got my I got my approval I got uh, through the CGFNS all the paperwork took a while it took nearly um, two years uh, many a lot of money and I got my um my nursing license I passed my NCLEX I said I studied while working as an RT and went to um went to pass NCLEX got my my license and because I already had so many connections within the institution that I worked at as a respiratory therapist I got into the ICU. Um, immediately started, uh, my husband, it well, boyfriend then, and then husband, once we got married, um, start pushing me that I need to be getting, doing something more. And he was my, one of my very first and biggest inspirations, um, is my husband who really pushed me that I have this hunger that is for something greater, for something bigger. I found out about, um, CRNA and working in the ICU. As, as the story goes, girl means boy and gets inspired and, and um, applied to the program after four years working in the ICU as a nurse. And um, the rest is history. Graduated in 2009, was not interested in anything politics of our of nurse anesthesia profession. I don't want to say we were not taught that. There was advocacy portion of the course, of the, of the program but um, had no interest in getting involved, you know, uh, just uh, was happy to be done because I had a baby at the time, my oldest one, uh, my oldest son, who still remembers words, word clinical when mommy was saying mommy's in clinical. Uh, <laughs> pretty traumatizing for him. Um, but my husband pushed me, he kept pushing me, you need to do this, you need to do this. Um, and, and you know that when you attract so many people to you that ask you, Sharon knows that. I know that she knows that feeling. When people just naturally come to you for 
with a question hmm. about what can we do to do this and what can we do to do that? How can we improve? <clears throat> you know, when I was in, in an anesthesia department in my first job, you know, can we give and bring more students? And, and, and I'm like, why me? Why is everybody? What, I, don't, I just want to, you know, squeeze a back, you know? <laughs> and before you know it, a chief CRNA position came in, four institutions haven't had a chief CRNA and since the late 80s. Um, very tough chair chairperson that I was working with. Very, very demanding, very tough. We were opening up an ambulatory, uh, up an ambulatory surgery center and um, she was tough on me and much, she reminded me much of my grandmother. I was like, ah, oh, she's coming again. <laughs> she's coming again for me. Um, let's build, let's build, let's bring more, more residents. Let's, well, students, I say it residents because I really strongly believe that those are our residents. Um, you know, let's do something. Yet, no independent practice. No, don't be, don't be going that route. But the budgetary demands and what CRNAs were doing and what we were doing, um, we're not kind of meeting, lining up in my head. So I knew there was something's up, even though I, so I, obviously when my husband sees the look, he goes, she's got a question. And that's a bad news for everybody when I have a question. <laughs> So it, that look was on my face for for a while until until Salt Lake City, and I'm grateful ever since then because from the time that I met my husband, the second person, second two people that I met in my life that made a significant impact on on who I am today and what I'm I strive for to be is was is Sharon and, and and Juan Quintana, you know. And when I saw Sharon, the powerhouse that she was when I I a day again, these days that I remember in my life, that's, that's the day that I remember that I need, to, I, need, I need to make a difference. I need to do something with this, with this passion that's just building inside all these questions that I have, everything that I need answer to that. So Tracy was also one of them. Tracy, I, I greatly do respect and appreciate Tracy Castleman. Um, she introduced me to a lot of people as well. Um, and she was here locally in New Jersey at the time running for Region 1 director. Um, and I went to her uh, campaign that she had uh, at the restaurant in New Jersey and with a group of people there. And she had opened up my eyes. And, and that was another light bulb that went on, that I need to do something, that I, I can have all these answers. But unfortunately, when I got the answers is when I realized, oh, shit, if I can use that language. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Yeah, New York's got a lot of battles that you guys have fought and that you have actually participated in. Now, you were state president. Just are you the immediate past president? Immediate past president, state president, 21, um, 22. Yeah. So just finished in October. 
Wow, what a story. You go from living in Siberia to being president of the New York State Association. And I suspect there'll be other leadership roles for you in the future. Let me ask you a question about when COVID happened. You were a respiratory therapist. I mean, I bet those skills certainly came in handy, too, during the COVID COVID epidemic since New York was hit so hard. I, I think, yes, of course. Well, more of, of, of obviously the fact that we are, you know, we're nurse anesthetists and, and being, um, you know, intubating and placing lines and all that was comes natural to us and, and being asked to be part of that t- team. What really kind of inspired me and, and, and made a difference for me professionally, besides just saving lives, was the fact that the, who was part of my team, respiratory therapist were part of our team. They were valuable, irreplaceable part of that team. Um, they were often my right hand when I am the only one left with this very sick patient. And I don't know what it is that, that this patient has when nobody knew. And, and everybody's out of the room because, you know, mask comes off and now we have to intubate this guy or girl. And, and now the only person who stays with me is a respiratory therapist. And that if you believe in any kind of karmic circle of life or anything that's kind of like what you believe in and, and, and what, what how you see the world as, as who you are is, is at that moment, I was not scared. I was, I was really, really scared for the patient, but I knew that I had somebody who has so much knowledge because it's, the profession is very much undervalued, I think. So wh- I think when we talk about the bridge programs, possibly AAs, you know, mm-hmm. Um, coming to our profession, I think we should seek respiratory therapists, those with that background, to attract them, to inspire them, to do the nursing and or have some kind of bridge to the CRNA program, right? Because they're already in the ICUs, they're already covered, especially after the COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I think much unrecognized and undervalued profession. And I'm, I'm very proud of my background. It gave me a lot of a very, very... Um, much needed um, knowledge when I was entering nurse anesthesia program. So yeah, that was, I think that was kind of popping into my head at the time is the fact that I have not nurses, even though they're there, they're going to be taking care of these patients after we stabilize them. And, but our T's were kind of with us all along, you know, doing blood guesses for us, calling you, you know, reporting, especially when I was covering the second wave uh, for Nick Blanc's company for UltraCare uh, in Hoboken, I was covering as an nocturnist, as an intensivist at night. So there was often 35 uh, COVID patients under my care at night with uh, just ICU nurses and respiratory therapists. Mm. And it was the best experience, I tell you. These people really greatly inspired me um, to advocate for for nursing profession as as a whole, for advanced practice, and giving me the vision of what we can ultimately be, right? So yeah, COVID so, was tough. COVID was tough, but it shined much needed light on, on nurse anesthesia profession. I think that that's going to be our, that's going to be the final nail that's going to solidify our profession in the state. I strongly believe that. That's what I advocate for every day. That's, I gave interviews and wrote articles and spoke to so many you know, legislators and journalists on this. And the public needs to know that, that we were there, right there. The, the, so, so often I was the very last face, eyes at the time that patients saw before they went to sleep and they never woke up, unfortunately, because how do you explain that, right? Like you used to, you used for them to go to sleep and they're going to wake up. You know, they're going to wake up because that's your job, job to wake them up. 
But how do you take that now when you go to sleep and you watch them struggle to breathe and you, you're the only one with RT or sometimes I was without just intubating them on the floor of the, of the emergency room and then them, them not waking up. Like there's so many things that go through your head. Mm. Wow. So Yana, I mean, you know, obviously you and, and Sharon are a different breed of, of individual. And, and in my mind, you're the top, you know, two to 3% of the CRNA community out there that really advocate for this profession. And I guess one question I have for you is why do you think the majority of CRNAs really don't advocate for this profession? And what do you think we can do about that to kind of help perpetuate that in the CRNA community? Hmm. It's a great question. You know, I was just thinking that yesterday as I was, uh, uh, casting my vote um, for the next for the next year for this for the for this year's election, and yet um, as I'm casting my vote, kind of still catching up on the interviews. I'm still want to want to hear what people you know what what they say. I missed some, so and we throw these big words, you know, we throw the governance and and some words I can't even pronounce at the time. We we throw leadership and um, and we need to learn, find people, and attract people. Well, what are we doing about giving people a vision? You know, what are we doing about about giving people a chance to find where they are comfortable? You know, like much like nurse anesthesiologist, the title, right? I don't listen. I don't disagree. It's here to stay. It's here to stay. We need to obviously not every state is good is benefiting from it right now. We need to fix the house before we paint. That's what I say in New York um, right now is not. Uh, that's kind of, you know, that made people, some many people uncomfortable. Those that work in heavy ACT practices. And what I'm saying, nurse anesthesiologist is here to stay. Anesthesia care team models uh, or, or, or environments are not going to go away right away. Even if we make, even if VHA ruling goes through the federal government, removes supervision, that is very much state specific. New York yeah. State is unlike any other animal that I've ever seen, experienced in my life just by the knowledge of my involvement in the ANA and seeing other battles. New York, as I've said this during the meeting, I say it again, is every, as our lobbyist said this to, this to us, is going to do everything first or very last. So what are we doing membership-wise, CRNAs, even those that are not members, what are we doing with giving them an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to find their own vision within that environment? So what are we giving them um, ammunition-wise, right? In terms of you're still working in that really heavily MDA-filled environments, they still supervising, directing you, and you just squeezing a bag. You're afraid to say anything because you know you might lose a job. I've lost a contract uh, because of I spoke up. To me, it doesn't matter. I'm a 1099. But... When I'm asking for the information, well, tell me, or let's work on it. How can we go and meet maybe with uh, a chief CRNA and an administrator and explain to them, you know, the cost benefit here? Do you think we can kind of, even just working with a chief CRNA, I met resistance. Like that was no, absolutely not when they're discussing it, even though I know very well that lots of, lots of just inadequate and sufficient practices are happening. A lot, of, a lot of our members are complicit. They are very content with the way they are thinking, the way they are practicing, 
and being non-political, even though they, some of them, and I know many of them that want to be political, but they're afraid. They're afraid. So what are we, what are we doing as an organization to give them the ammunition and most importantly, a vision to, uh, to continue fighting without being afraid of retaliation? So I think that that's where we need to start first is either, I don't even know if the surveys will work or, or have lectures that will be more inspirational in the nature. Because I tell you, when Simon came on to the ANA uh, during Shan's year, that blew everybody away. I mean, I don't think we've done anything like that in a long time. I mean, that was, we, everybody still talks about it because that gave people exactly that. That gave them the vision, right? That was part of it. Simple things like that, I think, is the key. On the state level, national level, it doesn't matter. We need to give people food for their passion and seek those, like Jeremiah, who uh, I don't, I'm not sure, Sharon, if you met him, who is not even a, a resident nurse anesthetist yet, but already came to the meeting on his own you know, resources, financial resources. And I met him, we have pictures and he met with everybody and he's going to be in uh, one of the universities uh, this beginning, beginning fall. Oh, wait, I did meet him. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that he wasn't already a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holy cow. He is, he is. Oh, he's a dynamo. How inspirational is, is that? And how we need to feed that passion. Like those are the kind of people that we got to seek out. We're talking about seeking out. Well, Make it where we can invite more people like that. Make it where we can really just, because I think we've all asked that question, you know, why, why do you want to be a CRNA? But then I think we asked that question really at the wrong time. You know, we should really ask ourselves that question once we, once we already graduate and working. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So let's talk about what's going on right now in Ukraine. I'm sure you've got relatives over there and your perspective will be different than our listeners because that's your, that's your homeland. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Tough, tough to talk about it without um, tearing up and having all this messed up that I put in so nicely for you. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to put a joke in there because it's, it's tough. I just spoke to my uh, niece earlier today. Um, you know, she's trying to graduate from university and they're making it so they're pushing everything around. She can't get her, you know, her, she's writing her diploma, her, you know, dissertation, and she can't get it there because the roads are blocked. Uh, the, the bridge that's from my little town of Cherkasin to the mainland uh, that's crossing a ginormous dam. It's, it's like a, a Hoover dam size uh, that they put mines around. Now you have to understand it. If you mine something, and I'm sure for the military friends that are listening uh, would agree with me, if you mine something, I'm sure it's kind of, well, it's not easy. I don't want to say it's easy to do, but I'll mine all that later. So what that means is if that, if, if what happens when dam blows, like mm-hmm. I believe all that water kind of floods everything, right? So now they have these challenges where even though Cherkasy, central Ukraine is a safe place to be, that's where a lot of refugees are coming right now from the West. And um, and not the west, the east and the south. 
there is concern because people coming back to Kyiv, they try to kind of normalize that central part of Ukraine, but their minds and people are being blown up. The vehicles are being blown up because they have not gotten a chance to unmine everything. So that's now a problem. But the first day of the war, February 24th, was uh, actually one of the CRNAs texted me and he's like, honey, I'm so sorry. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I, I said, oh, yeah, thank you. But I wasn't really quite sure until I, I, I quickly either Facebook, I don't remember how quickly I found out that there were shots fired or explosions heard in Kiev or near Kiev. I just visited in September. I was just there in September. Um, this fear, this I, I start calling, dialing, you know, everyone trying to, you know, it's middle of the night over there, five, four o'clock in the morning. And and one of my friends picked up and and then he goes, Oh, oh yeah, I hear something. Something's happened. I don't know. I'm like, oh my God, please turn on the TV. What do you mean you don't know? And then I don't know, it's hard. You know, I have to say something, you know, just for the purposes of knowing that there are so many that are listening that are Russian speaking. We're all Russian speaking, Ukrainians and Russians. We all speak the same language. There's differences in languages. I speak both. I understand both. I write and speak fluently in Russian. But those immigrants that are here, those are, that are part of our community, uh, our nurse anesthesia community, need to be supported right now because there's a lot of fear you know, if you're Russian speaking, you automatically will be hated mm-hmm. or discriminated against. And I want to understand, I want to kind of send that message out early on before any of this tragedy unfolds forward, that in our community, that is completely not going to happen. And we know that as, a, as, as, as Russian speaking CRNAs, we already kind of talked, but I want to make sure that everybody knows that we, we support one another. I had a patient the other day from uh, who originally came from Moscow. And she asked me, it's a very common thing to ask where you come from when you, in, in Russian language. And we just kind of switched to Russian and I was explaining stuff to her. And she's an older woman. And she got so scared because she knew I was Ukrainian and she's Russian and she's looking at me. She's like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, and, and I'm like, why, why are you apologizing? Oh my God. I, I said, I, I, I absolutely don't need to, you don't need to apologize. I will take care of you. Uh, you know, she's like, I hope you don't think anything of, you know, it was just strange, you know. So this we entering mm-hmm. that phase where people are going to start experiencing that. Yeah. So the situation is horrible. The, the pictures that I received, the private messages, the, the pictures and videos that I received from this, there's a separate, um, um, it's like a, like Viber, you know, uh, WhatsApp, all those apps, but there's Telegram. Telegram is, is very popular now among, among that part of the world where, Many those that that whose accounts were blocked on YouTube, uh, podcasts were you know Echo Moscow was completely um, disseminated and and uh, DC'd. Um, that's more more international, more kind of like freedom of speech is blocked. Hmm. So I get a lot of information there from Ukraine as well, and um, and and it's just what happened in when we were in at mid year. What happened in Bucha and and Irping? I just personally sent some finances, some financial help for um, to help those women and children that suffered such abuse and horror. At least the ones that survived, that were women and children that were raped. Uh, there were babies that were raped. Um, 
I cannot understand it because I grew up in both cultures. I grew up in, I was born and I'm Ukrainian. I grew up in Siberia, which is very much Russia. And I still cannot understand what drives somebody to do such horrific acts, you know? I also, the resilience, the resilience of, of, of Ukrainian people is just amazing. I mean, from their president to, their, to my, my own friends and, and family, how quickly they got used to just going to bomb shelters like it's going to work, you know? The sirens above their heads and the, the, the jets, uh, the bombing jets that are flying so low to the ground and they learn how to distinguish between which one is Ukrainian and which one is not. I am proud of that resilience. I'm proud of the fact that they're standing the ground. But they're not giving it, you know. Do you think Putin underestimated the Ukrainian? 100%. Uh, 100%. Resilience. <clears throat> yep. It is something that is, uh, he continues to de- underestimate it. I mean, they, these poor, at the same time, these young soldiers, these, these 18-year-olds, because what they do, Ukrainian soldiers start taking, the ones that die, they take their uh, passports and they kind of take it out of their clothing and then, take pictures and they post it on this on this on this channel because Putin prohibited on his end in Russia to tell the soldiers of these mothers where their kids are like what happened why are they not contacting it's like you know you you can't you can't find out what happened to your kid you know hmm. he was taking as a soldier he was forced to go and they are 18 the you know they call him pushchne masa it's you know that saying of your meat for the for the tanks wow so um so much death so much destruction i mean there's some places that i remember as a child the places that i remember just visiting recently because i've been going solidly once a year for the past four years solidly i've been going there every year completely destroyed just just not even there and my biggest fear right now is what happens to my little town if because they're so tucked away in central ukraine but for how long Right. You know, how long that's going to be safe. And, you know, I've said so many times because my niece is 20 and I said, I will get you. I will get you. I'm so proud of her. She had Cliff Robertson. You remember Sharon? She, he was a, a program director at Columbia and he mm-hmm. being the doctors without borders in France. He lives in France now. He contacted me to translate. And listen, my Ukrainian writing and, and it's much better. I gotten better because I've been reading and writing and reading so much Ukrainian back when, since I was a kid, but it's definitely not a, you know, translation level. And this is, we're talking about translating for the doctors without borders and possibly presentations for NATO. He told me, I mean, it's like some big stuff. So she did some translation for him and I'm so proud of her. And, and mm. he, uh, she's done such an amazing work and, and all opportunity to go. He was actually, listen, let's get her here. It's a nope. I am staying here. I'm staying with my people. I am getting a gun in my hand if I have to. If I have to protect my town, I will. And so many took arms. You know, they all, young girls, they took arms and protecting their towns. Um, And this is a 20-year-old who has a whole life ahead of her, you know, doesn't want to go, does not want to go. And she doesn't care if it's a nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons that everybody's talking about right now uh, that possibly can be used, chemical weapons. I've scared, I was trying to scare her with anything and everything possible myself. I was like, well, you know what happens? (laughs) You know, you know, come on, you got to get up and go. I can get you out of there. That patriotism is also amazing to me. I think 
a lot of Americans would, would do the same, but what it does, right, to you when you, something that you love, you will protect. Yeah. And Ukrainian people always a small country and they've always, always been kind of like, you know, rubbing wrong way with Russia, right? They're right. little. Right. And 140 million against 48 million. And I make that association with my own personal personal war right now, not personal war, my the war that I'm trying to fight here in the state. And I told once Ralph Cole, I said, I don't like that war. And he said, no, you are fighting. You are fighting for that recognition, mm-hmm. right? It's similar in, in, in mythological sort of way for me. Sure. The underdog feeling, right? That Well, New York is the belly of the beast. That's where the ASA started. Yep. That day, you know, I don't want to be like hearing, oh my gosh, she compared the war in Ukraine to us fight, you know, yeah. honestly, it's the David and Goliath type of situation where yeah. the underdog, you always want to root for that one. And I think that we will win. And if anybody can hear me right now, I'm saying it, we will win. We will get recognition here in the state. It's inevitable. It's already happening. Yeah. Well, you know, ultimately it's going to come down to dollars and you're not going to be able to fight that. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's just not going to happen. But um, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you can't fight, definitely cannot fight that. We, one of our biggest arguments is that, of course, is the financial right. strain on New York after the COVID, especially. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I answered that question. I kind of went, I kind of went everywhere. <laughs> but, but where my strength and my, my, uh, I think I see it now where my determination, my, my, my vision lies from, from my people fighting so hard right now. And I made that association kind of the picture became much clearer where I get that from, you know, the push from my grandmother and then the cultural genetic engraved fight in me that I want to do something. I am part of something completely greater and I want to bring more and more people with me. That's why it gets so attracted to me, I think, is because I inspired so many already to give and, you know, to give either to the foundation, to the pack and raise and kind of show them by example, of course, always. But I believe, I truly believe we need to find more believers. That's the thing. It's not the big words. It starts very basic. Yana, your, your grandmother was preparing you for life, this life. That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we don't know at the time as we go through things. Like I know Sharon went through things growing up. I went through things growing up. And, you know, you've gone through a lot of things growing up. And it, it has prepared you for where you are today. And it will prepare you moving forward in this fight. Obviously, you're a key figure in that in, in New York and nationally as well. And that's what you need. You need people like you and like Sharon and so many other the leaders of this great association of wonderful people. Um, and as we were talking before, one other thing I was listening to you talk and, you know, Sharon and, and the, the three of us were talking beforehand and we were talking about um, strong women. And that is what she prepared you to be mm. a strong woman. And you're a very strong woman. Um, and you you have this way about you that just attracts other people to you. Even though you're strong, you have this vulnerability in you as well that I see. 
And that's, that's a, what that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, Jeremy. I mean, and that's what attracts people. And Sharon, you do too. I mean, you know, I've seen you downplay yourself before, but I mean, but you both have that humility, that vulnerability. But even though you know that you're really up here, but you're relatable to other people, and I think that's what I see as as kind of an outsider in in most of the people that are in leadership in the CRNA community. They have that trait. And um, I definitely see it in you, Yana. So thank you, thank you for that compliment. I really take it, uh, take it to heart, and and um, there's just so much to build upon that, you know, to learn more. So that's what I'm, I guess that's what I'm looking for. Is as I go in, I'm not going anywhere. I really want to be involved. I really want to to stay and represent, and I really want to, you know, be in on a national board and and go forward because I truly believe in something. But I want to be part of that because I really still have so much to learn. Um, there's fine tuning, as many of my mentors always call me and say, "Oh, don't say that. Well, don't do no. You know, that's it." So, <laughs> yeah. And you know, an interesting thing is, um, only till recently, I truly start believing my own story. You know, I was was always ashamed of my slightly ashamed of where how little I have accomplished. Oh my goodness. Wow. And, I, and I've said that. Oh and, my goodness. And interesting. Uh, this is exactly. You didn't even speak the freaking language. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> this is exactly what um, Angela's mind uh, respond was to me when I, I said this to her, when I was visiting her, when Steve was still alive, that was really, really good conversation we had because they both looked at me like, Oh my goodness. They said, exactly. right. Angie turned around to me and she said, you know, you know your problem. You don't believe your own story. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. And she's a You believe now, right? You believe now. Are you kidding me? After everything that's been happening. She said she said that to me, and that kind of almost blew me, blew me out of her beautiful pool. <laughs> yeah. But you know, these are the people like that 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 in our in our profession that, that make a huge difference. Sharon. What did Jackie say? Empowered women empower women. You just mentioned another one, Angie. Yes. And she's, I'm so excited. I'm truly, I'm excited for this next year. Yeah. She is just a very powerful woman was with very little woman, but very powerful <laughs> because when her and I stand next to each other, it's really funny. <laughs> um, who has so much vision. And she always have, yeah. you know? So yeah, I'm very proud of her. I'm very yeah. thankful for her friendship as well. Yeah. Well, Yana, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything that you would like to conclude on or get across to our audience that, that maybe you haven't said yet? You know, I actually was planning on finishing with that. I wish I would say that now, but I was planning on finishing with that. I was planning on saying, believe in your own story. Hmm. Uh-huh. You start believing who we are as Certified registered nurse anesthetist, not what we call ourselves, not what we, um, you know, internally fight for, not what we outside fight. As soon as we believe that we already winning, that we we won, we manifest that, we think that, we know that. As soon as we believe in our own story, our own history is 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 a fact. That's evidence. You can't ignore that. We'll find our vision. That's that's all I have to say. 
I don't know what you did, but you you gave me chills, and I don't usually get <laughs> no, chills. No, he doesn't. But that uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear you. I mean, you're, you've got me thinking in my head about stuff right now. So, um, but yes, you you need to be in leadership for sure. You absolutely you. do. I would try my best to continue with with uh, support like these wonderful, powerful women that I have in my life, Sharon and and, and Angie and. Tracy and so many, so many more. Uh, my mom. Oh, I want to meet your mother. Have you seen pictures of her mother? She looks like Yana. Really? <laughs> or rather, Yana looks like her. Every time I see a picture, I'll text Yana and I go, thank your mother for your good looks because her mother's phenomenal. My mom, my mama is, is, um, is truly a special person who's, who I've built very special friendship and relationship with that's going to bring me to tears because we are so close in age and yet we just we just realize how to live how to live together how to mm. how close we are it took a very long time but i'm very proud of her that's great well yana thank you for being on the show today thank you for all you do for the nurse anesthesia community and your leadership and i mean your your genuineness has come across in this uh, episode today and i think i definitely will take something away from this and i know our listeners will as well thank you so much jeremy sharon thank you thank you so much guys i'm looking forward to seeing you in chicago and um thank you for having me i really do appreciate it absolutely well sharon i think it's a wrap i think so well if if they like our show and want to help us grow sharon how can they help us grow well, the best way to help us to grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. There's enough negativity in this world. There sure is. And share it on social media. Tell your friends. We're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country, and we want to go to number one, of course. Yeah. So help us out. That's right. Till next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. 
From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.